What's going on, guys? My name is David Gibbs. I am the host and founder of this podcast, SIDcast, a podcast resource dedicated to telling stories and sharing the experiences of the sports information and athletic communications profession. Before we get any further into today's episode, I would like you to go over to iTunes or wherever you get this podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps the show to grow up on the charts as well as continue to tell the SID story. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Sports Infocast and sign up for our newsletter at sidcast.fireside.fm slash newsletter. Now, let's get into today's conversation. I've still yet to uh, change the intro. Basically, how you uh, sign up for a newsletter if you are interested is sidcast.substack.com. It uh, literally prompts you to a page where all you do is put in your email address, and that's it. There's no form like we used to have to do with Google Forms. We've been on this uh, platform for I don't know six, seven, eight months now. Um, that's basically how you how you sign up and get all your uh, SIDcast news directly to your inbox. Speaking of getting things directly to your inbox, my guest today is Matt Brown. He is the author, founder, whatever you want to call him, of Extra Points. Uh, if his name rings a bell a little bit, Matt is was with SB Nation, uh, if that's how you know of him. He does a lot with the college football business or just business of college athletics in general, a lot of the history stuff as well, um, especially with realignment. Uh, what could have been, I mean, we'll talk a lot about that today in his work, of course, uh, how he got into doing some writing stuff, um, did Teaching for America down in uh, New Orleans, some interesting uh, interesting stories there, along with just uh, where to begin. I mean, we're in a time where we have time, if that makes sense, to start creating some content that is outside the box, maybe some things that you've always wanted to do, and maybe some historical research projects that, that uh, you've wanted to do for different teams, maybe catch up on some of your team history. Um Matt will talk about where he started with all that, even when writing extra points, basically prompts, and then how he uh, researched for his book that is available, and we'll kind of get into that as well. Um, yeah, nothing in the wake of news or anything like that. Again, I, I understand that you guys have a lot going on right now, and that um, you're not exactly going on your commutes. You can't go to the gym and listen to the show. You can listen to it while you go out and walk or run, because I know a lot of people are part of the uh, Cosida Fitness Challenge, so um, I, I, <laughs> I'm a little bit biased when I say I encourage you to, to keep listening. Uh, we're providing a lot of th- good things going on, especially today, about creating things worth of value, um, things that you're interested in, uh, when to pivot and know when it's time to pivot instead of beating your, beating your head against the wall, basically. Um, all sorts of these different things that are kind of outside the box of stuff that we usually talk about now that we have more time and more um, more of a capacity to, to, to ask some of these more, I guess, profound questions to some of our guests. So we've got a lot of good people coming up in the, uh, in the coming weeks, um, but right now we do have Matt Brown. It's not an SID per se, but he is one of those episodes to where we kind of go out of the box a little bit, talk to some members of the media. I enjoy his work a lot, so this episode was a lot of fun for me. And I want to make one quick mention of something that Matt uh, says later in the episode. It's an open invitation for you guys. If you have a college football team, well, I guess a football team in general, I wouldn't necessarily say college because this is for SIDs, but um, your football team, if you guys have an interesting story or you're in the middle of your first season coming up, or maybe you've had your 100th season coming up, uh, get in contact with Matt, his contact information. Um, obviously, his Twitter will be in the show show notes, basically. Um, but his contact information will be later in the episode that we can get a hold of him. Uh, he'll probably see if he can get in touch with you if he's interested. And uh, that way, your story can be told at a little bit more of a scale than what it it usually would be, or it might be. You know, I mean, you never know with these sorts of things, so you might as well try uh, while we have this time to do it. So uh, just to be able to catch up with him, basically, and uh, see what he's up to and kind of pick his brain a little bit on some different topics. So we will start off episode 156 of SIDcast with Matt Brown of his newsletter, Extra Points, and his sport background growing up right here on SIDcast. 
question. I've, I've, I've always loved sports. You know, I, it's, uh, I grew up in rural Ohio. I, w- I wasn't that far from, from Columbus. And so everybody we knew was an Ohio state fan. And I think given my, my mom's immigrant story, my, my mom's from Brazil or, you know, where nobody plays oh. American football. And when she moved to Cleveland, you know, one of the ways that she learned English and kind of learned about America was through Cleveland Browns broadcasts. And so I, I feel like my family really kind of bought into a lot of like the super America, apple pie, you know, Norman Rockwell painting stuff and uh-huh. college football and all the iconography that comes with that is, is so much a part of it. Um, so I, I was, I was really into it, but Growing up in Lincoln County, Ohio, we didn't know anybody who was a sports writer. Like the, the only sports writing job that I could really understand would be like who covers the high school for the local tiny newspaper. So I, I don't think I grew up wanting to work in sports necessarily. I grew up a, a big a big fan. You know, that's, that was how I learned math. That was how I, I kind of contextualized hmm. the world around me. But it really wasn't until I think my senior year of college that I really realized that, that this was actually something I wanted to do. I, I thought I was – I have a political science degree. I thought I was going to go – be an attorney and go save the world and, and pick up a lot of this kind of like ideal idealistic stuff that I, I learned at home. And then after I, I worked for the Ohio attorney general for a while in college and later I did some political work in Indiana and I realized I suck at this and this isn't for me. What I really love doing is writing. And, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't, Ohio state didn't really have a J school program. I, I kind of had to kind of do things on the fly. And I, I was, I've been really lucky that I've been able to kind of sneak into this profession in the back way. Um, you know, I didn't get to go through Northwestern or anything, but I, that's right. also, I think, giving me a little bit of a different perspective that's been valuable for where I worked. Yeah. I mean, what kind of an experience did, does that bring over for you? Because you're obviously working in a political space where you have to obviously be thorough with your work. I mean, what yeah. were some other things that translated well from your political attorney law space? Uh, obviously, you do a lot of FOIA requests. So, I mean, what what yeah. is that? How has that helped you now in your uh, sport writing career? Yeah, well, I, and I did my very first job, like out of college, I, I did teach for America. So I taught fourth grade in uh, just outside of New Orleans in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. Mm. And I, I joke about this, like I feel like those early jobs between working for Joe Donnelly, right, the you know, Northern mm. Indiana Democrat during the Tea Party election, when nobody wants to talk to a Democrat. And then teaching in New Orleans, where nobody wants to talk to a kid like someone who looks like yeah. me, who has no idea what he's doing. Um, there's obviously a ton of rejection in those early careers and a ton of high-level stress. And honestly, I think that's been enormously beneficial for me because digital media, working in sports can be very stressful. You have tight deadlines. There's tight financial pressures. People are often yelling at you. And I can go back and think like, well, this is a really stressful experience, but is it the same thing as being screamed at in my fourth grade classroom? Is it going in there and seeing a snake because my post Katrina like trailer of a fourth grade classroom is flooded because they didn't they didn't have a chance to rebuild the building? No, it's not that level of stress. No one's saying racist things to me. You know, no one no one yeah. is is doing any of these things. And so when you have that early experience, it puts some of the sports stuff into perspective. And I think that's been a big part of how I've been able to grow and develop in my career and be a, a good leader and a good manager is to be able to I think treat this the the this exactly as serious as it deserves, which is both very serious and also not serious at all. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, we're 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 talking about college kids playing soccer and about softball, and like that is very important. It's important to their livelihoods. It's important to our local economies. It's important to their education. It's still soccer. So like mm-hmm. that, I, I I think I think that's helped a lot. You know, the, the detail oriented stuff and the working with people from different backgrounds and and turning around content quickly, like those are all useful, applicable skills. But I think it's a lot of those soft skills that that really carry over the most. You just kind of glazed over this part of your career where your trailer was in, was obviously Katrina happened. I mean. You can't just skip that, man. You got to like <laughs> no, come I, back a little bit. What happened yeah. there? Uh, so I know this is two thousand nine. And a lot of public infrastructure in New Orleans hadn't fully been rebuilt. So, you know, my public library was in a trailer. Um, a, a lot of other, uh, you know, city infrastructure things were not in permanent buildings. And now I believe the elementary school where I taught has a beautiful full uh, building. But where I taught there it was a collection of, of trailers, of those modulars, right? You might have seen these throughout mm-hmm. the Midwest when a school building is over capacity and you have to just throw some stuff in the parking lot. Uh, so that's that's where we were. And, you know, just the Mississippi River is four miles away. So you're at sea level. And um, if it rains a lot, there's nowhere for that water to go. So I would beg my kids, like, listen, man, you can't 
you really can't eat in here. And it's not because I care philosophically about you eating, but because creatures are going to get in here. Sanitary. Yeah. Yeah. And and that happened. Yeah. So, you know, I came in the door one day and there was a snake. I, I, I accidentally cussed in front of my kids once because there was a gigantic spider in there eating their ramen noodles. And, you know, you're 22 years old and, and you know, you're, 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 you forget that you're in front of little kids, right? I wasn't a parent yet. And you see a gigantic spider and you go like, Oh, well, you know, say something maybe you shouldn't. So I, you know, I'd write an apology letter to my students on the class board and do the same thing to them that I would have them do if they cussed to me. Like it's, these were just things, my life experience and my time at Ohio state and my training at teach for America could not have prepared me for less. Mm-hmm. I knew how to do a lesson plan. I knew how to like, you know, figure out what a, a measure an objective for my students. Did I know what to do when 25 kids who, you know, clearly all had PTSD and all needed me to be things that I wasn't were asking questions of me. And also there's a gigantic spider eating. Like, no, I, and, and, and that you're going to have those experiences. I think in, in any job, the rest of your life where you're just asked to do something you have absolutely no idea. And people are counting on you. When I was 22, I failed that test. I'd like to think I'm a little bit better about it now. <laughs> naturally. I mean, that kind of comes with the, with the Asian experience. I mean, I, sure. like kind of like you said, you, you're never prepared for the people. I mean, you can, you can sit in a classroom for four years, do 120 credit hours, but nothing's going to prepare you for the people that you're going to meet. I mean, that's what was, was for me. We were talking off air a little bit about yeah. um, me coming back for a year. And I, I actually took a job at working at a, a, a local news, like video news, internet news, um, doing their sports. I was a sport director at the age of 20 and nothing could prepare me because I I also had to do part-time. I had to cover murders. I had to cover all these other different things and nothing prepares you for that. Nothing. Being able to have those interactions, those discussions with people and have, especially in a professional sense too, kind of like what you said, you have to still, even though you're 22, you're, you're teaching these kids that probably are saying worse things or seeing worse things than you've ever seen at home. Uh, you still have to conduct yourself in a certain way. And I think that that's, that's one of those things that uh, you just can't teach until you get out and, and you actually are in the mess of it, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. And, and media, I think, is a good example there that you really learn this by doing. There are, you know, you, you can learn AP style in a classroom. You can mm-hmm. learn the inverse pyramid in a classroom. You can learn some basic do's and do nots in a classroom. And I, I, almost every journalist and, and even some PR people I've talked to have said this. Like you learn it by going to the local swim meet, like <laughs> swim meet and writing the results. And they're due 10 minutes after the, the meet is over. You go it by, you learn it by keeping stats at JV basketball in the middle of, in the middle of nowhere Midwest, which is the kind of stuff that I had to do it. And, and that's what teachings was like. And that's what, you know, polit- political organizing is like. And that's been a lot, a lot of what, I've had to do. And, you know, at a place like SB Nation, where we might have only had one or two J school grads, you know, at the beginning, we were just asked to figure a bunch of stuff out. And undoubtedly, we made some mistakes. But that's that similar kind of thing, right? Well, we know a little bit about what our readers care about. And we remember a little bit, we we learned from the one elective in school, and we're just going to go do it. And sometimes that, that's worked really well and has changed the way that people consume media. And sometimes I'm sure there's been some things we would have liked to have taken back. Yeah. So let's talk about how you kind of got into sport writing per, per se. I mean, you were, you were at this space and, and then you were in, uh, like you kind of said, the this, this senior year of, uh, of college, you started to realize that this is really what I want to do. So how did you get into that? I mean, you mentioned briefly there, SB Nation, were you there for the beginning of that? I mean, can you spare no detail about how you got into this whole, whole seemingly, uh, what's the word, Goliath of, uh, of a writing uh, enterprise. Sure. You know, so yeah, I, I graduated from Ohio state in 2009 and SB nation, I think was just starting then. And I hadn't heard of it. So my mm. senior year, I realized, okay, I can't get on the Ohio state student newspaper because, um, you had to start as an undergrad to really get a, a staff writing job. And so I figured I'm going to go take every single writing gig I possibly can. So I wrote opinion columns for the school newspaper. Um, I you know, drove back to Lincoln County and I, I called up the editor of the local newspaper and offered to be a stringer for high school football. And they let me do that. I did an unpaid internship for the Columbus Monthly Magazine. Uh, I covered, you know, football games, high school, high school football games all around, like, you know, the rural counties around Columbus. And then I did an okay job with some of those. And thankfully, I had some patient people that, that helped correct my mistakes. And that turned into swim meets and some basketball games and a couple other things. And by the, you know, the, by the end, I graduate college and I've got 40 or 50 clips. Then I go off to Teach for America. And I did a little bit of that on the side. You know, I couldn't cover games in my district, but I covered a few University of New Orleans baseball games. I, I, I did a little bit of stuff at Tulane and 
as I was trying to figure out what to do. And I remember when I finished teaching, I was like, okay, I've got a bunch of clips and I'm ready. And I've, I've got a, you know this prestigious organization here on my resume. How hard could it be to find a newspaper job? Let me tell you, man, uh, very hard. <laughs> uh-huh. I think I reckon I applied to probably 100 media gigs. Most, almost all of them paid less than I made as a school teacher. And I one place, like a three days a week uh, newspaper in like rural Panhandle, Oklahoma, called me back. And they were, I mean, it was like I would have still needed food stamps. So I'm like, I, I'm, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I went and I did the political organizing. And then I, I worked in human resources for a little while. You know, the, the, some of these kind of corporate jobs that people with liberal arts degrees end up doing. And I just kind of assumed like I missed my chance. And I was, I started working, doing team blog stuff for SB Nation around that time. I, I'm, you know, I, Grew up an Ohio State fan. I wrote for their Ohio State site, and that started as kind of a once a week sort of thing, and then uh, that became a twice a week thing. And eventually, I started helping run that site, uh, and I helped run another site. Um, SB, everyone in SB Nation's BYU site quit all at once, and I didn't go to BYU, but I am a Latter Day Saint. I married a BYU grad, and uh, they were like, "Can you help run this site? Like, can you be our special Mormon correspondent a year for a little while?" Sure. So like, yeah. Sure. Okay. Like. I don't know this school that well, but I know my people. So I, I guess we can try that. And after doing that for two years, making just terrible money, like, you know, 200, 300 bucks a month. Right. But I was ready to quit and go get an MBA. And then a full-time job opened up where they were looking for somebody that had an editorial background and also some leadership and also, you know, a little bit of HR, which is exactly what my career had done. So I, I kind of got the last lifeboat in and now my job, I've been, I was there for seven years um, and the, the job changed a lot and it became more editorial. It became more strategic and business and everything. And it turned out to be almost mostly a really, really fun, rewarding ride. Yeah. I want to talk with you about some, maybe, uh, let me back up for a second. You were teaching, you were doing all these different things, but you still had an end goal in mind of what you really wanted to do and what you really wanted to be in the kind of person, the kind of space that you wanted to be working in, writing things like that, especially your you were a, a student teacher. There's snakes in your trailer. I mean, there's kids like swearing at you. How did you keep yeah. that focus and keep that uh, kind of goal in your head, even while things didn't seem so great at the time? Oh, I, I think I was too stupid to know any better. <laughs> I, you know, there, there was that's a common my, answer, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, I might have been different if I had known people in my life that had gotten to point, you know, from point A to point B, but. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any sports writers. I, I, I don't think I really knew any full-time journalists. Um, I knew, you know, people that, that did kind of, you know, mid-level corporate America kind of stuff. And I just, I just figured, well, the internet's wide open. Everyone's starting blogs right now. I think I, I know how to tell stories. Um, I think I understand a, a way to write that's, that's, you know, a rebellion against the kind of late middle-aged sports writer that made every single paragraph a sentence. And, you know, even like the, the mid 2000s seemed pretty lazy and I'm just going to give my best shot. And what I don't have in uh, a Medill background and what I don't have in some of these connections, what I don't have, uh, you know, from this, from this gatekeeping, I have sheer force and inertia. And, I don't think that's a sustainable thing because, you know, a ton of people were doing that same thing around that time. And I see kids doing that same thing now. And it's unfortunate that our industry set up where a lot of them aren't going to ever get opportunities. And the ones that do often, you know, had those advantages in the beginning, but it worked out for me. What do you mean by that for force and inertia? It was, I, I, I wrote a ton and mm. I, I cold called, uh, so many other different outlets. And I wrote stuff besides sports. I, I, I did some education stuff. I actually had a teacher blog for a little while. Uh, I tried, I, I, I pitched a couple of religion stories to a few Mormon blogs. Like I, I just did everything I possibly could. I, I didn't totally know what I was doing, but I figured if I just got enough reps and try to win people over through a personality or, or, you know, tenacity or, or whatever that it might work out. And I was lucky that a couple mm-hmm. of those clips performed pretty well. And I built a really good relationship with people at SB nation. I, I don't think I realized that, uh, given the amount of hours and time and, and reps it took to get there, that I might've been financially better off doing a bunch of other things. I was just so single-minded. This is what I want to do. I didn't know how to yeah, do I anything think- else. And I think that it's a good good time, especially to have this conversation. I mean, because there are obviously some people that do listen to this who are still in undergrad or maybe still sure. in grad school, things like that, um, where you might be beating your head against the wall or something, and it's just not working for you. And this is a, one of those times in your life to where you have to learn to pivot and pivot well. And that, and obviously, you're not going to 
pivot right the first time. I mean, you're going to have to like try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. And that's kind of like the whole point of this whole career path and the whole life in general yeah. is um, when something's not working, you have to move, you have to move on to a different path. What's the, what's the thing where you're, is it the definition of insanity is when you try to do something over and over and expect a different result? Yep. Because I get what you're saying. I was kind of the same way where um, I would, uh, especially when this, when this podcast first started, you know, I would email somebody would not hear back for, for a long time, maybe until a year, year and a half into this. I would keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And then something, you know, it works. I mean, there, what's the difference for you between knowing you're going someplace and knowing when to give something a shot and give something a try, like with all your heart, basically, for lack of a better term, yeah. versus something that um, you might be putting a lot of effort into that's just not working out for you? That's a really good question. And I, I, I wish I, I, I feel like it would be a lie if I came up here and said, well, you, you know, friends, I, the reason I broke through after my 507th try is because I'm immensely talented and I deserved all the success or rewards that I got. Man, like, this is not how things work, right? There, there are definitely people who are smarter and, you know, know their you know, commit fewer crimes against God and skunk and white with their combo usage th than I do. Um, and I, I think in our business, sometimes people move ahead or get those initial, you know, first chances for, for reasons other than pure merit. And that, that it's, 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 that's kind of our, 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 how things work and everything, you know? Right. Yeah. I was fortunate that I had a support structure. I, I, I got married relatively young and my wife was really supportive of me really making a go of this. And that meant that there were a lot of evenings and or that, that all I would be doing is writing or researching and you know, I probably spent more money than I should have on unused books. Um, and I, you know, candidly, I had a job, uh, an HR where I could do some of that stuff during work too. And as long as I still got my work done, if I was do, playing with the newspapers.com archive or hopping into Slack at noon, nobody really cared. And if I hadn't had some of those opportunities or advantages, I wouldn't have been able to do this. And I don't think I would have been able to get successful. But even then, like my wife and I agreed, like, Hey, listen, by the time you turn 26, if this hasn't happened, we got to, you got to pivot to something else. Um, and I, I was lucky that, you know, that opportunity happened beforehand, but I think it is important to be unrealistic in your ambitions and, and your efforts, and then also be realistic enough to know that at some point you got to try something different. And even within my job at SB Nation, I, I feel like I've had five or six different jobs while I'm there because nothing in media stays the same. And there were skill sets I never thought I'd have to develop that I had to learn. And there were things that I wanted to do the entire time that I didn't get to do. Like that we're constantly reinventing ourselves and you know that's kind of what my newsletter is and that's what mm -hmm. some people are doing with podcasting and that's what you know the the beat so to speak that i kind of really care about now wasn't really what i really cared about when i first started you know that was a pivot to realizing that everybody wants to talk about nick saban and everybody wants to talk about a high state step chart i could be one of 60 people trying to find that one tiny little bit of new insight to, to kind of make me step out from the crowd or i could try to pioneer something completely different and that's more i think of kind of what I would recommend for people as they're trying to pivot is you have to find something that's for you. Yeah, absolutely. I like being able to give yourself kind of a time frame to say like, if this isn't working an appropriate time frame too, cause you don't want to give yourself like a week, you know, you, yeah. you want to give yourself plenty of time to be able to grow and be able to kind of make moves and adjustments and audibles uh, as you're kind of going toward your goal. So I like being able to, to tell people that um, I go 90 days, is what I do. So I have basically four quarters of, of goals every year um, worth with four different subcategories of stuff. It's really, it's really complicated. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I like being able to have that, being able to have that deadline. Like you said, you, you kind of found a little niche here that uh, people really do enjoy as we were talking off air a little bit, myself included. That's why I had you on and I'll be full, fully transparent. People are probably listening to this like, why the hell is this guy on the show? Well, because I enjoy his work. <laughs> so um, how did you get into this whole historical research stuff? How did you get into kind of looking into um, college athletic business in general? Because, And then we'll kind of get into later about uh, your different methods and things because this is stuff that SIDs are doing now that uh, we're all at home. Yeah, um, I, uh, I I think part of that speaks to the fact that I came into all this from a different background, right? So be because I had, you know, my, my mom was in, was an educator, and I was briefly an educator, and I, I think I got to see, um, 
uh, maybe a little bit of a different side of the recruiting process or, or how the life situation of kids like where I taught, uh, you know, has, has real world re, you know, realities for college athletics is, is maybe something that you wouldn't have necessarily learned at J school. Like, I, I'll give you an example, right? If, where I taught in Louisiana, high poverty district, um, mm-hmm. the, the quality of education and instruction is, is very clearly not there. Otherwise I would have never been hired, right? Like people like me don't go <laughs> yeah. teach in the rich schools on the North side of Chicago. So you have some of these kids who through no fault of their own um, are getting substandard education. They're getting substandard nutrition. Um, and uh, even though they may be naturally very gifted athletes and with the right structure could be, you know, have really great fulfilling college careers. And they're, it's not, they're not bad kids, right? It's, it's not their fault. And I think that's part of why you see HBCUs or some of these schools that really cater to some of these populations get you know, dunked on all the time from the APR and some of the national conversation about the college prospects of some of these students. Like now that I've been there a little bit and, and know some of them here in CPS, you realize it's kind of racist or it's, mm-hmm. I, we don't have to make all of this a morality play um, based on these other structures within our country that, that impact these kids. And, you know, with that life experience already in my head, that changes a little bit, I think, of how you talk about recruiting or how you talk about the APR or how you talk about eligibility requirements, right? One school being more selective doesn't make them more morally righteous or anything. Um, right. So so that was always you know, part of my background. I had to write a lot of stories for SB Nation you know, about Big 12, potential Big 12 expansion, right? If you're writing about BYU, it's the only the fun stuff. Writing. The fun stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> but everybody on the internet's writing that same thing too. So I'm like, okay, well, I could sit here and I could I could look up the U.S. news report, you know, college rankings, and I could look up your media market and pretend that that alone is a useful thing. Um, but then, like so many people do, so a lot of people do. And look, you know, yeah. it's, I, I'm not I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying like CBS is going to mm-hmm. write that same post, and two four seven is going to write that same post. So one of the things I tried to do was try to find historical context to this. And write a lot about, research a lot about historical conference realignment. And this blew my mind. Some of these stories to me were so fascinating. Learning about the airplane conference, learning about mm-hmm. the super metro conference, learning about why the Pacific Coast Conference blew up. Um, and a lot of it was surprising to me how contemporary it was. Now, obviously, we didn't have television you know, playing a, a heavy role in, in all of those conference decisions. Certainly, that was the case for the, super, for the metro. But... I realized that like, you know, how we talk about academics isn't, isn't just like a look at the U S news report rankings. Like this is something that's been a factor since Notre Dame in like 1908 or whatever. And that was kind of the impetus for my book, which uh, came out, I think in 2017 or 2018 about, um, you know, kind of what if moments in college football. And that really, I realized that there's not a lot of people writing about that. And from interviewing some of the, the individuals who were involved in there, it was a new space. Like, this is what I'm really interested in. I'm really interested in, in how decisions that administrators make and state level politicians make and, and financiers make and boosters make. Certainly that has just as much of an impact on how good a football team is than how good their middle linebacker is right now. The, 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 the fact that, you know, Indiana and Purdue, you know, made friends with people at the turn of the century to get them into big 10 rather than like the Missouri Valley, it certainly plays an impact on what Indiana athletics looks like right now. And you can look mm-hmm. at some institutions that aren't super dissimilar uh, that didn't have that. You know, compare the the, the history of Louisville athletics to, to maybe some of those programs. So that's where I got into researching this, and I think that kind of played into my you know social science background and and my own personal upbringing and the things that I find interesting. And that's kind of led me to to where extra points is. You know, I've been keep running this newsletter now for about a year that seeks to look at off the field forces that I think impact what we see on the field. And my audience there, I'm really grateful that there are SIDs and there are conference commissioners and there are people that work in college athletics that subscribe and have participated in this. And it means a lot to me. But I kind of envision my audience as SB Nation readers and fans, right? People who might not necessarily know what a multimedia deal is or who don't necessarily know um, how some of these factors are really influential. And so I don't look at this and th- I, I can't replace what D1 Ticker does, right? I, I don't think this yeah. can necessarily be an inside journal, especially given my limited resources. But I think I can talk to some people and, and research some things and try to synthesize this history and what I'm reading and seeing and, and, and who I can talk to, to advance that conversation in some way and explain or shed light on some of these forces to people who may not be familiar with them. And it looks like there's an audience for it. Like the the feedback I've gotten has been mostly positive. Um, mm-hmm. 
Mostly. It's grown. It's grown pretty well. Yeah, and and uh, the, and the and the criticism I've gotten has been constructive. And I've tried to, to tweak for that, and that's what uh, I hope to keep doing because I, I I love and appreciate a lot of the different college sports coverage that's happening here. I think this is different. I, I would encourage everybody else to be different, and this is what is really interesting to me. Let's talk about a few things first before I want to kind of get into the nitty gritty of, of the of the research and the extra points, things like that. I want to sure maybe for people that like like to play that fun what if game, like myself, I like to sit there and I like to I do a lot of simulation stuff. Um, I, I'll try and I don't necessarily use NCAA football, but I'll use my own kind of metrics to. I mean, this is how I nerd out basically yeah. when I'm by myself. Um, how do you start thinking about realignment and maybe even? administration how that affects i mean where do you even begin with that because there are some because little timmy in his basement can write every day about how the pac-12 should admit boise state but does that make sense no so how do you even begin to think about that and, and what does how does fit i would say play in a role in this whole ever-changing landscape of college athletics yeah it's it, that's a it's a fascinating question and fit it's challenging because it, I think it varies from from league to league to conference to conference, right? So for and from seemingly year to year now, sure. Now we're so thinking about it, yeah, yeah. I, I think within the Big Ten, given you know what we know of the historical origins of the Big Ten and the role that the Big Ten has played historically within, uh, <clears throat> I would say the NCAA power structure, right? Like this is this is a league that's been kind of hand in glove with the idea of of standardized you know, academic enforcement and and a certain idealism of, of amateurism. Um, that that limits a little bit the kind of institutions that you're looking for. You're like, for, to, for this league being an AAU or AAU adjacent large research institution matters. It matters mm-hmm. at Indiana or Ohio State to say we are pure institutions with Michigan and Wisconsin. That's that dynamic doesn't exist in the same way for the Big Twelve, and that's not a criticism. That that's just a, a league that has institutions with with a lot of different kind of profiles. You know, some similar to what a Big Ten institution looks like. Some maybe maybe a little bit less so. And there, it's more about geography and historical rivalries or or convenience. Uh, and you, I think, when you get down to the Division Two level or maybe in the G five level, the the binding factor might be uh, we all want to keep playing sports. We're all sports teams w- w- within a, a similar in the same area. In, yeah. Uh, yeah, and sometimes maybe not yeah. even that. Like look at Conference USA. You've got teams from Virginia Beach to to El Paso. Um, you know, you have Rice, a gigantic research powerhouse, and you have Old Dominion, which, you know, this is a different kind of school serving a different kind of population. So when you look at realignment and fit, I think you want to understand historically, like, what are those, what's that conference's core values? What are those conference's core values, right? What are the institutional priorities of, of those athletic departments? And like what, what I found from reading through history is that sometimes, you know, you don't always get to make those decisions from a position of strength. But when leagues lose those, those, those unifying characteristics, whether that's unification through geography, through administrative mission, through budget, um, that's where things tend to fall apart. Whether that's the old Missouri Valley, whether that's the old Southern Conference, whether mm-hmm. that is the, um, the Southwest Conference. Um, and I think there's some concern that maybe parts of the American athletic or the conference USA fit that diagram, fit that paradigm. Like, I don't, I don't think it's an accident that UConn left. Uh, and that's an athletic department that has very different goals as a basketball centric, you know, urban Northeastern institution than maybe some other ones in, in the American and, and, and mm-hmm. understanding these dynamics and helps, I think, make more educated inferences or, or projections when looking at some of these things, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like we're all kind of writing fanfic, right? If, if you're starting to talk about, about realignment, <laughs> Honestly, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but you can you, you can make that speculation much more informed, I think, if you understand some of the the at least the beginnings of the dynamics why people make those decisions. Yeah, you could probably whole come up with a whole niche about uh, college athletics fanfic and make it all about that. I think oh. that's kind of <laughs> funny way to put it. Um, so you've got this book, like you mentioned, you, you, you went through a whole writing process, whole research process. Um, so, so talk about the writing process a little bit here, because I'm a guy, like I mentioned, uh, I don't like to sit here and do nothing. Like I don't binge what, Netflix six, eight hours a day. Like I'll, I mean, I watch a Jordan documentary. Yeah. But like, I, I'm not sitting here doing nothing. Like I want to be able to write books. Yeah. So what's like, the whole writing process for you? What was the whole research? I mean, how did this all fit into your work? Uh, spare no detail for us. Yeah. So I would probably not recommend how I wrote what if 
<laughs> process wise, because when I was doing this, I had, I had one daughter and she was, uh, I think about a year old. And I was at a kind of a career crossroads at SB Nation when I realized that if I didn't pick up some more skills or really develop a niche or a beat, I wasn't really going to grow. I, was, I wasn't especially satisfied with, with, with where I was. And mm-hmm. um, there wasn't an immediate advancement opportunity within the company. So like, well, one way I can do this is by be, you know, becoming a subject matter expert. I'm going to write this book. Um, and I, that was basically the only thing that I did for about six months. I didn't play NBA 2K. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still did church stuff and I was still, you know, being an active, engaged dad. But what I would do, like when I came home from work is I would research for a little bit, I'd go to the gym, I'd, you know, put my girl to bed and then I would work on the book for three and a half, four hours a night. And one of my, I think only journalism superpowers, I think, is I can write pretty quickly. When, wow. Once I, once I did the reading, I probably, you know, I read 45 books and did a gajillion clippings from newspaper.com and did probably two dozen interviews for it. Um, but I just, and I would just sit down and say, okay, we're going to write a thousand words tonight. Or we're going to write 3000 words tonight. And I did it every night. And I was lucky in that some of the research lined up with work I was doing for SB Nation. So I could do some of it at, at, at work. Uh, and my wife was willing to take my, my, my kids sometimes. So I could just go decamp at the university of Maryland library. I was, I was living near Maryland's campus at the time. And uh-huh. I had that big 10 library card so I could get all of these old books from everywhere. And it was, it was really expedited. Um, I felt a, a real sense of urgency in, in trying to get this done quickly. And uh, I would, I would probably, I, I think I'd like to do another book, but I, I think I would want to make sure I gave myself more time and spread that out a little bit, especially now I have two children instead of one and they're both a little bit older. And um, I, I don't think that pace was sustainable, but when, you know, you're sitting there, like my mom had just passed away and, you know, it was, she was really encouraging me to do this project and I didn't know how much longer I was going to have this job. And it was just like fear was a pretty, was a pretty big muse. And that, that can be a helpful muse, muse sometimes to, to get things done quickly. Um, yeah. but I, you know, there's probably some things I would have done differently about it had I had to take a little bit more time. That's fair. I mean, I, I hear all the time about how some people, because I listen to interviews with authors by a podcast and they talk about their kind of own little systems and processes. And um, I listen, I just got done listening to, to Jack Carr's interview, um, how he has to go through like the Pentagon because he's a, he's a, a former military guy to yeah. be able to e- even write fiction about missions based off of, of stuff. He has to go through Pentagon, which it sure. just, it seems like an extra step, you know. But um, yeah, I'm about to kind of name drop an SID here for a second, who I think has done a great job through this whole coronavirus stuff uh, as far as researching um, and writing a story about it, making some pieces on it. Josh Mank at Texas A&M Commerce for the Lions. He did a great job of kind of going back through um, and writing a fun little piece that I, that I really enjoyed reading um, about the basically inception of Texas A&M Commerce football. I know it wasn't called that back then, Josh. So um, how do you go about researching this stuff? What's the first place you look? I mean, you do freedom of information acts, but that's more for like scheduling agreements and money types of things. So yeah. Um, how do you go about this? I mean, where, where's the first place you look? Yeah, you got a library card, but you got a thousand millions of books to look at. You, you do. So um, the first place I typically look is I fire up newspapers.com and I try to go look at some of the original material around that event. Like that, that newspaper archive is, is an amazing resource. And I know I would encourage anybody that's interested in this stuff beyond that, which is a pretty affordable subscription. You would be shocked what you can get at your public library. Like my Chicago public library card gives me access to the Chicago Tribune archives. You know, that's 150 years of, of writing, mm-hmm. but also a lot of archives from the wall street journal, from, you know, black newspapers throughout Chicago, uh, a bunch of other small press. So there's anything that happened in the Midwest, anything that happened in big 10 history, you know, with a little bit of creative Boolean searches without having to pay anything, I could probably find it. So I, I want to, I want to look there. I have a, a couple of college football encyclopedias here. I've been kind of building my own, like kind of mini library, mm-hmm. um, some generalist resources. So I can kind of find like the top level stuff, it may be a bibliography, and then it's okay. What are who are the experts on this area that I need to I need to look into? Are there academic journals that might have some of this information, um, and and kind of dig into it from there? Um, you know, I guess on the SID side, and one of the one of the cool things about the business that we're all in, so many of these institutions in our sports are really old, and that means that there's a library of stories and individuals and people 
that our readership and our fans and our people are connected to us may not know about, but are still going to have that visceral emotional reaction to. And I, you know, and I think Indiana's really good at this. I think a lot of Big Ten schools are, are good at this. Like people literally feel something if you show them a logo from like 1937. When you oh, yeah, when you, when no you show them the black and white Yale Bowl, like that 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 means something to people. Like the, the the real personal connection to some of this history that I've written about, like I see, and like I, I think as we're all kind of struggling for what do we talk about now. A lot of people are aware of maybe some top line scores or achievements that happened, you know, kind of pre-1950, but they don't really know the characters. They don't really know the, the flesh and blood people. And to the extent that, that you know, I, I'm able to do that, and certainly other actual historians or other people are able to do that, I think there's a real public demand for it. Yeah, I enjoy... Uh, oh God, they're going to kill me. What's the Twitter account name? But it's like IU archives or something like that. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that account. I enjoy that account a lot. I mean, we were talking a little bit off air and people can just go on our IU Hoosiers Twitter and see that we're doing a kind of like a retro logo challenge. Yeah. I've I've, I've uh, seen that. And I think Florida was doing that too. And Connecticut mm -hmm. did that. And like, I I think, I think that's smart. It's, it's a great social play, but people, Mm -hmm. people love that stuff. And that, that, that's why home field's so successful. (laughs) Oh, Homefield. Love them. And, uh, yeah. um, they're huge fans of the Oval, I'll tell you that. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that that's it's out of, out of the Bison is my uh, that's my pick. But um, I was going to say kind of like even if you're kind of a newer, newer university, you still kind of have those fun little niche stuff. I mean, USI, which is my alma mater, that's where I did a little bit of undergrad sports info work. That's where I did a semester of GA work. Mm-hmm. Um there's all these fun little quirky stories about like, okay, we're going to start athletics, but what do we call ourselves? You know, and that's what my team name book is for. That kind of shows you a little bit ago. Um, but it's fun to kind of dig through and look because we were either going to be the Eagles, which turned out to be screaming Eagles. I don't know what the difference is. Um, They're louder. Or the Spartans. Yeah, exactly. Or the Spartans. And you can see evidence of Spartans to where we were preparing to be called the Southern, basically Indiana State University at Evansville, which is now USI. Spartans. Our newspaper is called The Shield. There are different buildings all across campus and different little rooms and different little publications that were named after some sort of Roman, or not Roman, what is it? Spartans are uh, Greek, I think is what it is. Mm-hmm. Greek different things because we were totally prepared to be called that. And that's just fun. I mean, you, you, can, you can find a niche. You can find an angle at all times. And I guess yeah. my question to you, um, as we're going through a certain uncertainty here, and, and obviously we'll talk about creating something of value, but you want to make yourself different. You want to set yourself apart, especially when we all come back to normal in the fall, you're looking for a job, what have you, how do you find that niche? And how do you feel comfortable in that niche? Because you don't just want to like make shit up and then just <laughs> throw yourself, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I like do. okay, I I'm do. just, you're just gonna like, I'm just going to throw myself into this because nobody else is doing it versus, okay, I actually enjoy this. Like you did with the collegiate business research, basically. I think the only way that you can ever do it is if, if it's authentic, right? Like Mm -hmm. I, I, this is a conversation I have with some of our writers all the time when they're building up their sites and they say, okay, Hey, you know, when there's not a lot of coverage of of Olympic sports here at at our school, maybe we're going to get really into that. And I tell them like, if you want to get into volleyball, and you're out of a, you're writing about the Big Ten. You should because it's it's fun as hell. <laughs> like and, and these mm. these are high level athletes, and it's a great immersive experience. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, like <laughs> one of the coolest games I've ever covered as a professional was a Nebraska volleyball game. I felt like watching the '96 Chicago Bulls with that the same like uh, you know walk-in music, and they turn off the lights, and there's all these like 11 year old girls waving like their cell phones, and it was it was just the coolest thing. But I tell people you can't fake that because. The audience that cares about volleyball will know if you're phony and they will rip you to shreds. And if you are trying to make an honest effort to get into that world, people are going to to uplift you. They're going to support you. They're going to help you and they're going to give you information because they love this thing too. They want to help you learn about it as well. But if it's inauthentic, they're going to destroy you. And I, I think the only way that you can find that 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 kind of niche is, is discovering what you know, really interrogating yourself, I think of it. What is it that you like about sports? Um, what is, why, why, why do you like the things that you do and, and, you know, diagramming this to figure out then what is something that's a little bit different. That's uniquely you. What is, what, what are stories that you specifically are best equipped to tell? What is it about your background, your, your story, your geography that, that makes you different and you have to like it. And that means you have to try a bunch of different things. And I think it means you have to read a lot 
Like that's always mm-hmm. the number one question I ask like undergraduates and they're asking me about, you know, potentially getting into media, potentially working in athletics or universities. Like, what are you reading? And if the only only content you're consuming is, is your is you know the top level stuff from ESPN and a couple of YouTube channels, I don't think you're going to get the the depth to uh, really grow a lot individually, um, including things that have nothing to do with sports. Like read a bunch of novels, mm-hmm. read great newspapers, read you know interesting columns throughout the internet, and that gives you like I think the kind of holistic depth of experience to look at college athletics in a new way to help make you unique. Um, I don't think it's an think, accident that that's how a lot of people at SB Nation, which made our company successful for a long time, came into this with really different backgrounds. Yeah, I think that another good way of putting this for our for our listeners as an SID is kind of looking at it from the university standpoint is like, what do you guys value? Because you still have to have that authentic voice. You can't fake stuff during this time. No. Like if, if you have a completely off tone going from we literally just canceled sports and we we basically cancel these kids senior seasons or whatever it's gonna come off really bad and i think like you said having to interrogate yourself maybe even having a discussion with your administration or maybe even some people within your office your coaches what have you i think is one of the most important things you could do during this time when you're especially when you're trying to come up with content because like you said if it's if it's not authentic people just aren't gonna buy into it yeah and i think it's also nice to say nice to be able to have in the back of your mind because i I know we talk about pivot i was just in a co-side coffee shop with a where basically our our conversation was pivot i mean i've got some books over there that discuss, you know, trying things out and letting things fail, but not celebrating failure, if that makes sense. But um, I forget where I was going with this, but I I was thinking just that uh, this is a time to where you guys have an opportunity to find your voice if you haven't found it already. And I think that going through and being able to break yourself down and I don't remember where I was going, but like going through avenues and if something's not working and, and you're just sitting there and you're working really hard on something and you're like, man, I'm just not into this, step away from it. Yeah. Like don't force feed yourself for it. Like I think that's another mistake a lot of people make. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's all true. And it's useful. As terrible as everything that's going on is right now and how it's leading to interruptions in our employment and for a lot of other people that mm-hmm. we care about, if I, to the extent that we can. It, it can be a useful time to kind of then take a step back and think about what you want to do differently or, or to, to, to pick up something new or to learn something new. And I, I don't want to, you know, if you, you pull up Instagram and I feel like every single thing is like, now you got to turn this quarantine time into completely reinventing yourself. And like, you can't put mm. unrealistic expectations about it. I would love to sit here and read three books every day, but when I'm done with this phone call with you, I'm going to go back to running my unlicensed kindergarten. And um, like you, you, I, I feel like I have, I have less time. Right. But it, it can right. be a forced transition that can require you to interrogate yourself a little bit more about what, what is it that you want to be doing when, when, when things restart or, 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 or what, what else, what else can I do? What else am I interested in? Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the stuff that isn't directly related to covering games that I've, dedicated myself to, whether that's learning more about you know, history or business or, 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 or dem- demographics, these other things. I think within my company, the fact that we have a lot of very religiously literate people who understand that I think the culture of you know evangelical youth group or the, the, the culture of like church basement Mormondom intersects a lot with the language that people use for college football and has made us mm-hmm. better writers. I, I, I think of some of the things that I've learned becoming a terrible woodworker have actually made me a, a little bit of a, of a of a better writer too, right? Like it's it's right. all it's all multidisciplinary. So let's find something a new, a new discipline to, and maybe that will open your mind up in a different way that can make you more effective in your current role. Uh, I'm I'm gonna butcher this quote. I know what book it's from. It's from As a Man Thinketh, but it's like decisions don't make a man. Circumstances do. I think that this is one of those times to where, yeah, our backs are up against the wall. You yourself will talk a little bit about your yeah. situation here, but this is, yeah, I, I, I'm not all for like, if like, well, if, the, if you never ran a marathon, you've always run a, ra- run a marathon. Now's the time go out and run 10 miles. No, you got to scale it back a little bit. You got to be a little bit smarter about what you want to do and what you're going to get interested in. You know, you wrote an article about uh, woodworking and myself, I have a small business that I, that I, Tend to, I got myself a 3D printer that I have looked into so much. I didn't know that there was so much to this 3D printer, but <laughs> yeah. um, 
yeah it's oh my god dude they've got like some people have like dozens on shelves just going all times but um i think that uh this is a perfect time to do it that this is a perfect time to find things that you're interested in and i don't think you really have an excuse at this point um personally because i mean you do have time now i mean you're you're at home if you want to learn how to woodwork matt's got an awesome awesome article if you want to make a shelf or you want to make a tiny little bench, that's fine too. Or yeah. you want to make a huge project, look into it. Like there's nothing stopping you. And that's, that goes the same for, for even during, um, during working hours. So uh, speaking of, of this whole coronavirus and things like that, I know if people that don't follow you, how about can you give them up to speed a little bit about what's going on with you? And then we'll kind of get into uh, extra points here a little bit. I mean, how you got the news how did you feel about it? Yeah. So, you know, I've been at SB Nation for seven years. And unfortunately, this is not the first time we've had layoffs or furloughs or, or cutbacks. You know, we're, we're not immune to the pressures that other media companies are facing. Um, you know, your local newspaper over the last couple of years has probably lost people, too. I've, I've been fortunate that I've you know, been spared the last couple of times. I wasn't I wasn't so fortunate this time. So, you know, technically, I've been furloughed for three months. And my rehire is contingent on college football starting up again on time on July 31st. Uh, I don't think that's realistic. Um, at, at least, and if it is starting it back on time, I don't think the advertising market is going to restart that, that quickly. So um, I took a buyout. So I, they're, they're going to pay me some severance. And uh, whenever they're, they're able to hire another college football person again, I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation with them. But I'm kind of operating on the assumption that it's time for you to do something different. And anytime you've been somewhere for a long time, and especially I think in writing where our kind of job isn't just a job, it's something that's tied in with your personal identity. Like, you know, mm-hmm. nobody really lies awake at night hoping to, you know, I want to grow up and be an insurance claims adjuster. And like, that's, you know, I'm going to, when I go to a party, people want to talk about that. And that's what I'm doing in the evenings. Um, that's what writing was for me. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff I would probably do even if I didn't get paid because it's, it's part, it's become part of who I am. So anytime you lose that, Sure, it's 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 very it's it's very disheartening. You know, it's been an emotional past couple of days. But I can look at this. You know, on one, I'm I'm I think I'm very blessed that my wife works and has a little bit more job security in her industry. So you know, I don't have to worry about losing my house. I've been mm-hmm. I've I've been saving as much money as possible for the last two years because I figured you know our company is probably going to have cutbacks. It's uh, I, I don't think I'm talking out of school here when I say uh, Vox Media is increasingly less interested or concerned about running the sports part of their business. It's, it's not as important to them as Vox.com or The Verge or some of the hard news or documentary content. Um, you know, if you follow any other SB Nation person on Twitter, I'm sure they'll be happy to tell you a little bit more. So, you know, I, I have a little bit of flexibility, right? I, I still have health insurance for a few months. I still have some severance. So I, I, I have some time to think about what's next, but it's still, it's sad. I loved working mm-hmm. there. I loved what that place represented. I loved almost all my co. I loved all my coworkers, um, and you know, being forced to make those kind of decisions is hard for anybody. So that's you know, I'm going to take this time to try try and do something else and figure out what my next act is. And that's something else in your next act. I mean, you've you've again, we've talked about pivot a little bit here. I mean, you you have a product that you put out, and if something somebody think, thinks that this is an advertisement, kiss my ass because it's not. But or <laughs> take it however you want. But yeah. um. You've got your own newsletter that you started about this sort of thing. I mean, let's go back to the beginning a little bit here before we kind of get into monetize. Why start that newsletter in the first place? Yeah. So I started Extra Points last April. And uh, a big reason for this was we had a a corporate reorganization at Vox Media that really separated a lot of the college football content from SBNation.com. We created something called Banner Society, which you may be familiar with. And yes. um, I, I have kind of a weird job at SB Nation where I would do editorial. I wrote for SBNation.com often, but I also managed all of our college brands, all of the individual SB Nation sites that represent uh, different oh, okay. college yeah. programs. Yeah, like I was their boss. I, I helped hire and train and, and, do, and do all the budget forecasting and strategy for those people. So when Banner Society split, and part of that was it, it, to like, you know, separate that brand a little bit, I didn't have a place to write anymore. And I had a non-compete, so I couldn't just like go write for two four seven and keep my my, my day job. Yeah, so I started yeah. extra yeah. So I started extra points and did it for free. And the big the biggest reason was writing's important to me. Writing is how I make sense of some of these trends. 
they're, not, they're, they're stories that probably wouldn't live on espionation.com because they're all kind of niche, but I want to do it for me. And I think maybe 50 people will read it and that will be enough for me to keep doing it. And mm-hmm. I got about a hundred subscribers that first week, but it, it grew kind of slowly. It, w- it really was more for me than it was for anybody else. And you know, slowly I learned about newsletter marketing and I learned about what kind of stuff performed. And I learned about how to write for that format versus the format that I had been raised to write about for the, the past couple of years. And it was really fun. Um, and I've, I've just been really lucky that, especially over the last six months, I think there's, there's been more interest for it. So once I got laid off, I realized, okay, I know what I'm capable of doing, writing this twice a week on basically no budget. Or I wasn't making money from it. And in order to kind of really elevate the product I'm producing, I, I have expenses. I need to be able to buy more local news subscriptions. I need to be able to buy... Uh, I, I think some some other subscriptions to be able to, to get all this information and to support people. I, I need time interviewing and transcribing people and making that extra phone call and trying to advance these stories takes time that I just can't do uh, mm-hmm. w- without any kind of income, especially now that I'm unemployed. <laughs> so uh, that's why I turned on the, the paywall. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do. I, I don't want charity. I think you you guys have had a chance to read this for about a year. I think you know my voice and, and, and what I'm generally going to be writing about. I can give you more. I want to be able to do more. I want to do more interviews. I want to do more. Um, you know, I want to try to you know advance stories a little bit more. But all that stuff costs money, and so mm-hmm. I need I need your financial help to do that. And so I, we I've been yeah, I get a little bit emotional thinking about this that. It mean it's not a huge number, but in you know four or five days, I got a hundred over one hundred fifty subscribers, and at seven bucks a month, that's a thousand dollars a month. That's that's that pays for my daycare whenever we have. Remember daycare? <laughs> whenever we we have daycare again, your in home daycare. Yeah, my income. Well, that pays for eventually when we have daycare again. What what that typically costs for my one kid? It pays for me to be able to have enough money to pay some other freelancers who are mm-hmm. now also unemployed. It pays for me to be able to pay for Otter and for newspapers.com and those things. And I'm just going to try to give this my best shot and and keep digging into a beat that fascinates me. And I think there's some interest in, in other people. And if that gets to the point where it becomes a real, you know, a real income source for me, wonderful. If not, I did my best. And, and then that I think gives me some skills that will make it easier for me to try something else whenever these jobs open up again. Yeah. I think, People really cringe when you when you kind of say paywall or something like that. To, to be completely frank, you've got a free version, then you've also have a paywall version. So people that don't want to pay, they can still get the one for free. So yeah, that option. Yeah. People do the same thing with like video game DLCs, where they're like, "Is it free?" And then they'll say no, and then they're like, "Why?" <laughs> because it costs time and money to do this sort of thing. Like why? Like yeah, you can't expect it to be free. You can't expect everything to be free. So. Um, I think that this is a great time. And as we were kind of going back a little bit, creating something worth value. I mean, you've obviously found a niche audience that wants to pay. So um, creating something worth of value, I I think is something that is one going to, people who are going to be prepared when this is all done. I mean, because you're learning skills now, because now all of a sudden you're technically a business owner, a small business owner, but you're technically a a business owner. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably a position you've never been in before learning, like you said, learning about news newsletter marketing and things like that. Um, this show is no different. I mean, I started this as a way I was mumbling a lot and I wanted to get into play by play. Sure. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to, you better learn, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I had 11 people listen to my first episode. Now I get about three, 400 an episode. That's good. Which is not bad for, for what it is. It's a pretty niche market. Sure. You know? I mean, there's, there's a thing of value. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, like I kind of said, people cringe when you hear the paywall stuff, but, uh, you got a comment and, and I see other people get comments now when they try to celebrate victories or they try to basically convince anybody to do anything anymore. Um, basically how dare you that there are, I think, what was the tweet that you got? Oh, like yeah. there people dying and people losing their jobs and you're asking for more money, like pathetic yeah, I, or something I, like I, that. I made a flippant joke about, and, and this is something that like I've been doing on the internet for the last five years. Like I made a joke about, Hey, you're subscribed to this so I could buy chicken nuggets for my kids. Like obviously not literally. We're not, yeah. I'm not, we're not, we're not 
out of money to buy chicken nuggets, but you know, this is the kind of more conversational, informal voice that I used to talk about these kind of things to talk about my family. Um, somebody objected to that, thought I was being exploitive and, uh, you know, asking for money mm-hmm. in an era where people are unemployed was, was unfair. And, and, you know, called business. Yeah. So on one hand, I think I would have been justified for just nuking this dude on Twitter, but I, I really, I, I try not to because I, I well, yes, this, this specific individual is probably a troll. This is not an uncommon thing, I think, in anybody in media asking for money. So all I can do is just say, look, not everybody's going to find value in this, and that's okay. Like, and, and if you don't have the money for it, and I've talked to a lot of people that are like, hey, I love what you do, and I want to support you. I've also lost my job. We're looking at maybe a world with 20% unemployment. That's going to happen. It was important to me that I still find a way to provide something for them. Um, I, think, I, I, think, I think it's important. But if you like it, if it's valuable for you, I would encourage you to find a way to, to help support it in some way. If you can't, I understand. If you don't find value in it, like that, that's okay too. I'm, I'm trying to to be as optimistic and excited and like not combative about any of this because anytime you put yourself out there, it's a risk. And you know, mm-hmm. some people are gonna you know start paying and maybe stop paying, and some people are gonna think it's not worth it, and some people think I suck, and yeah, that's okay it's um I'm, I'm not for everybody and nobody's for everybody and all, all i can do is just do my very best and um let the chips fall where they may yeah basically so um yeah i, I think the, the the post that i saw was it was a guy that was talking about how much weight he lost and somebody was like how dare you basically the same phrasing of of, of comment yeah. that he that you got and he's like, how dare you, how dare you do this? Why X, Y, and Z? Well, we live, we're living in a world where it's changing minute to minute. And quite frankly, it's a sad world at the moment. Everybody is pretty depressed in their house. So why not share little victories and why not do something for yourself that will ultimately, uh, you know, put might inspire or put a smile on somebody else's face. So, well, we're bumping up against time here. I, I usually ask people some fun questions at the end yeah. uh you're not an SID per se but i'll, I'll still try and twist these a little bit to, okay. to kind of get to your uh your level here um what was the most fun fun little research project y- you did when even maybe even researching for the newsletter or researching for the book what did you find absolutely fascinating man i i loved reading everything i could about the metro conference and, and, and i was lucky you know writing my book that I, I reached out to some of the some of the people at Raycom who were involved in those decisions, and they said, "Hey, you want to you want to you want to see our old business plans? Like, do you want to see the pitch deck that we sent to everybody?" And they're like, "Our cable projections. Here you go. Like, this is a useful." So I, I got in the mail like these five binders of like these wow. are the number of TV households we think we can get, and here are the schools that initially said they were interested. And obviously, you know, it's 25 years ago, so it's not you know confidential anymore. And this is, you know, this is my catnip. Like, this is the stuff I wish I could see for everybody. Even schools are like reclassifying from D3 to D2. Like, I want to see uh, your feasibility studies, not because I want to dunk on anybody, but I, I love learning about this stuff. You know, I, I'm going to interrupt you for yeah. a second. You know what? I, I always read football feasibility studies. Like, Little Rock, I've probably read a couple of times. Like, I'm sorry, guys. I'm a nerd like that. You know, I enjoy that, it so that, much. That, that's, yeah. yeah, that's how I am too. In the newsletter, I'm just like, hey, look. I, I know I've got some old conference commissioners who subscribe to this. My email address, mattbrownohio at gmail.com. If you want to send me some old ones, I want to FOIA with some old ones too. Um, yeah, I got, I've got Cleveland States and George Mason's, you know, on this computer here somewhere. Like for, for, for me, like th- this, this is interesting. And it, I think it really showed how ahead of the curve. I think a lot of this thinking was about the importance of TV markets and the importance and you know the idea of pod scheduling, which I feel like, People are shouting. I've written about supporting this now in the year of our Lord, 2020. Yeah. And like 1992, that was a revolutionary idea. What's always interesting to me when I do any kind of research about college football history is how contemporary a lot of those complaints or issues are. Concerns about amateurism. We've been doing the same stuff, man, since like 1898. But I think with the Metro, that really, that really stuck out to me like that, that I, I, I think it's a fun story. It sucks if you're like an East Carolina or Southern Miss fan because what mm-hmm. could have been? You could have been trajectory of your entire university cool. could have changed. Yeah, yeah, you definitely lost out. Um, but I, I, I think that really informed me about some kind of kind of questions to ask when looking at these things I didn't know about beforehand. My kind of side passion project, as I said, I read uh, feasibility studies. I also custom make the little pocket pros for people, mm-hmm. the little tiny two inch football helmets. And so one of my passions, I've got them right here. I thought my, my alma mater does not have football, but I always imagine what it would be like. Oh, that's awesome. If they did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously people can't see that, but 
uh, it's fun to kind of to kind of go through those. And you, you, some people are like, well, that's not practical. You know, what does that really do? It's fun. Like, calm down. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's not at, for everybody, at, at the, obviously. At the end of the day, man, we're, we're in the entertainment business. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to inform people. We're trying to be honest. We're trying to, to fill that need. But the structures we're talking about, like, people care about them because they want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, it's not yeah. that serious. Yeah. In my opinion. Well, uh, other question I got for you next time somebody's in the Chicago area. I know this is a huge area, man, but you got to pick because people, that's why whenever I get uh, reviews, they like this part. Restaurant or bar recommendation, or I guess restaurant recommendation. Well, you know, it's unfortunate in my stage of life right now, I have a five year old and a two year old. And so the number of times that I get to eat at restaurants that don't serve chicken nuggets is is, is pretty pretty small. Like if you're in my neck of the woods, I live in Northwest, the Northwest side of Chicago. Uh, smoke barbecue is in my neighborhood. Um, that is, uh, Chicago is not typically thought of as a barbecue town, but if I think if you want a place in the Midwest that combines some of the both, uh, Eastern North Carolina and Kansas city traditions, I, I think it is excellent. It's, it stacks up with some of the places I've had in Greenville. Um, the great thing about Chicago though, man, is it's, it's the United Nations, like every kind of ethnic food you could possibly want that you haven't tried before. You could definitely find here. I, I like to joke that my neighborhood is the intersection of Mexico and Poland. Um, if you want to find a pierogi, like an authentic pierogi place right next to like three different taquerias, like infusion between the two, like you can find it. If, you, if you're in town, find yourself a place that you don't have where you live. And I, I promise you, you're not going to regret it. Perfect. 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 Um, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, I mean, uh, what would be the best way to do it? How do they subscribe to Extra Points if they want to? You bet. So my email is mattbrownohio at gmail.com. From Ohio. I don't live there anymore, though. Um, you can find me on Twitter at mattbrownep. EP stands for Extra Points. That's my newsletter. You, know, you can find it at mattbrown.substack.com or there's all kinds of links uh, on my Twitter account because, uh, unfortunately, in order to make this work, I have to hawk my newsletter like every sixth tweet uh, or, or or else, you know, I self-destruct. So uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm not doing it to be a jerk or anything. It's just I look at the metrics and that's by far uh, the biggest referral. And, you know, for, for your audience, if you think that there's a – you know, a, a story about your kind of institution that you think mm-hmm. the, a broad football you know fan base doesn't understand or just want to talk about, get in touch with me. Like I'll tell you in the next couple of weeks, I'm talking to a lot of leaders uh, at the division two level. Um, a lot of my, you know, a lot of my readership, there are people that care about big 10 and sec uh, football and they might not really understand what life is like at the D two level and what those institutional missions are like or what their stories are like. And, you know, I'm a, yeah, listen, man, I, I'm a nerd. My people, and I say this with love, they're nerds too. So I'd, I'd love to yeah. talk to you. You know, I'd, I'd love to talk to you if you're a, an NAIA, you know, religious institution. Sure. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's talk. Let, let, you know, let's, we got nothing else going on. We'd love to talk about how your, your institution uh, is unique and, and different and special and what kind of challenges you face. Awesome. Well, uh, I will definitely plug that in the beginning of the episode, but uh, Matt, thank, thank you. you very much for coming on. No, a little bit of a different episode for everybody, but I think that they'll enjoy it all the same. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.